welcome to Hell of Presidents, Episode 5. But how was the play? On the evening of March 20th, 1854, a group of about 20 people met in a small schoolhouse near Ripon, Wisconsin. They were led by Alvin Beauvais, a New York transplant, and he was pissed about Kansas. Congress, led by Illinois Senator Stephen A. Douglas, was in the midst of passing the Kansas-Nebraska Act, allowing for the status of slavery in the new territories to be decided by popular sovereignty. The possibility of expanding slavery into these new territories and the repeal of the Missouri Compromise was ripping apart party affiliations across the North. Beauvais and his group agreed they had to abandon their previous party and realign to oppose their one true enemy. Quote, We went into the little meeting held in the schoolhouse Whigs, Free Soilers, and Democrats, Beauvais said, but we came out of it Republicans, and we were the first Republicans in the Union. The flailing breakup of the Whigs and the creation of the Republican Party was the next step towards resolving the set of insurmountable contradictions at the heart of the country, slavery, and the sectional conflict it generated. By the 1850s, this central conflict had become unavoidably larger than any of the attractions that had bound non-sectional Whigs and Democrats together. A Whig party that compromised with the South was simply non-viable, and the resolutely anti-slavery Republicans had to be born. The Northern Republican Party quickly grew to absorb members of many previous parties and coalitions. It was the conscious Whigs, the anti-slavery Democrats, Northern Congregationalists, Presbyterians, and Methodists, the Working Men's Party, the Loco Focos, who I can't believe we never actually got into, maybe in a bonus, burgeoning members of the Temperance Party, abolitionists know-nothings, and free soilers, or as a Southern newspaper editor would call them, quote, a conglomeration of greasy mechanics, filthy operators, and moonstruck theorists. Tag yourself. <laughs> I'm definitely a filthy operator. I'd like to think of myself as a moonstruck theorist. Yeah, it's romantic. Yeah, very much so. But I left the Free Soilers at the end there because they're important. The anti-slavery of the Republicans was, yes, based in moralistic revulsion to slavery, but also in an issue of white economic rights. The Free Soil and the Free Soil Party indeed referred as much to distributing lands to the West to white smallholding farmers. And hey, there, we can already drop today's It's Free Real Estate. As it referred to the moral necessity for keeping the West free of the despicable institution of slavery. The party realignment reflects as much the solidified sectional split in political economy as changing cultural sentiments. Matt, care to expand? So we talked a bit last week about how the Republican Party emerges as uh, a instrument of a moral fight against slavery, an instrument of a economic battle force, uh, white smallholder access to the Western territories and as a vehicle for the political ambitions of of people in the existing political parties in the North. Uh, and those forces, when they come together to create the Republican Party, finally create a structure where there is now an ability for northern the northern political economy, the, 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 indu- the bur- burgeoning industrial North, to uh, have a political expression that does not need to compromise with the interests of the South. Uh, and it meant that all of the 
economic issues that divided many Northerners, things like the banks and internal improvements, could be subsumed, uh, could be subsumed under the battle against slavery and in favor of the free labor vision of the Northern uh, political economy. Uh, and it's important to note that the conflict here that's coming, the civil war that emerges, it is a conflict between two uh, modes of production. But it is not as though the conflict between plantation agriculture in the South and the Northern industrial economy was uh, existential at that point. Uh, in fact, Southern plantation agriculture was well integrated into the Northern uh, machinery. Uh, in the the people who would end up buying the government essentially after the Civil War, the, the Wall Street financiers, were largely pro-Southern in their sympathies and, and incredibly hostile to the sectional issue. They were the, these are the people who supported Millard Fillmore's Silver Grays over the Conscience Whigs. So while there is a conflict, there is not an, a, uh, that conflict had not come to a final reckoning. What brought the reckoning was a political crisis was the fact that the political cultures created in the North and South had become incompatible. And the political aspirations of the main mass of politically active participants in the North and South were no longer uh, compatible. And that is what really drove the war uh, more than, more than uh, the economic conflict, because while economics shapes and defines the territory of politics, Politics is also its own force, and you can see that very clearly uh, in the lead-up to the Civil War. Yes, and we'll see in that lead-up that this era is defined by political operators at the very top who find themselves incapable of bridging any of those conflicts on a, in the political sphere. Yes. Even though they should be hypothetically resolvable, they're, they're just simply, over time, becomes no, no electoral constituency or politically powerful constituency on either side of the Mason-Dixon to support it. And so with this, the third party system in place, we are now on a somewhat inexorable course to a sectional crisis. Did it have to be a civil war? Maybe. Uh, but we'd have to get some exceptionally dull dipshits in the driver's seat for it to go that far, right? Oh, yeah. This is where the Democratic Party just starts frantically button mashing. They just keep hitting <laughs> doe-face, 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 hoping that the, they'll win the fight. Well, with that, let's talk about Franklin Pierce. Franklin Pierce was born in 1804 in New Hampshire to an old-school New England family. His father was involved in state politics as well as a farmer. Pierce was well-educated, though a mediocre student, and became a lawyer in New Hampshire by 1827. He rose through the ranks of New Hampshire state politics as it was overtaken by Jacksonian Democrats and was eventually elected to Congress, then to the Senate. Throughout his political career, Pierce was the embodiment of a doe-faced Democrat, one of the Northerners who supported Southern policies. He was enthusiastic at all points to compromise on slavery, though, of course, personally morally opposing it, you see, and saw the growing Northern abolitionist movement as just agitation and annoyance and threat to the Union. Uh, Matt, we've kind of been leading up to this uh, since the last episode, and you briefly touched on it, but do you want to talk about how this particular dead end is kind of the only possible way to go for the Democrats? So it's important to remember that the U.S. Has, doesn't really have, has never really had political parties as they're understood in other countries. Very few people in this country have ever formally belonged to a political party. What we have instead are people who tend to vote for political parties. Uh, this 
means that there is an inherent disconnect between the interests of the party apparatchiks and the people who vote for them. Uh, so for people with a direct stake in the electoral fortunes of the Democrats in the North, not just politicians but beneficiaries of political patronage, such as you see at the Tammany Hall urban machine, slavery could only ever be a distraction from the goal of maintaining and exercising power since the party that Van Buren had built depended upon a coalition of what he called the plain Republicans of the North and Southern planters. So as the sectional crisis intensifies, the Democratic leaders settle on a strategy of running Northerners with pro-slavery sympathies for the presidency as a way to bridge that chasm and avoid the third rail of slavery. The problem is, is that for regular Democratic voters who aren't personally invested in the fortunes of the democracy, who don't have a stake in it as a party, their vote is not about maintaining uh, that system. It's about expressing what they imagine to be their political self-interest at the ballot box. And over time, slavery moves from the, from the periphery to the center of their political interests. And that means that Northerners with political aspirations who found themselves shut out of leadership of the Whigs or the Democrats could cultivate new paths to power by channeling those sentiments. And the doe-faced strategy, which was the only thing that the Democrats could rely on because their party was only legible as a brokerage between Northern and Southern uh, interests that elided slavery, all they could do was rely on this doe-faced strategy while at the same time losing more and more of their voters uh, to the uh, political in innovations of the uh, anti-slavery parties. So Pierce hits the Senate, gets tired of being in the minority there during the Whig 40s, then goes back to New Hampshire and fucks around in the Democratic politics there for a while, getting the state so wired for the Democrats it would constantly return some of the highest popular vote percentages for Democrats in the country. In 1846, at age 41, Pierce decides he needs to live up to his daddy and brother's military service and enlists in the Mexican-American War. He gets a militia together in New England and heads down to Mexico, where he serves alongside General Winfield Scott. Pierce's time in the war was a mixed bag. Many he served with would attest to his competence, including Ulysses S. Grant. But he also suffered a series of mishaps, like his horse startling and knocking him groin first into the saddle and then falling on him and fucking up his leg. My leg! That's got a hoi. It was a very uh, Three Stooges-esque stunt that he pulls there. Uh, later, during the capture of Mexico City, he was tent-ridden with crippling diarrhea and couldn't command. So he comes out of it with his supporters thinking of him as a hero and his detractors thinking of him as a coward and a bit of a doo-doo ass. Uh, Pierce emerged as a dark horse candidate in the Democratic nominations of 1852. Uh, there's some politicking behind this, like the hyper loyal New Hampshire Dems wanting to get their guy in there. But the important thing is, was that Pierce was a doe faces doe face, a northerner whose policy was above everything. We should put this whole nastiness of talking about slavery behind us. He was also... Uh, an absolute babe. They called him Handsome Frank Pierce. And if you go back and look <laughs> at pictures, he is absolutely in the running for uh, one of our hottest presidents. Uh, and his the hair specifically, it, it's it's pretty impressive. He had this corona of, of black hair just floating over his head. And he was also a very, very uh, severe alcoholic, which in 19th century terms is really something because that was a time when Americans drank far more than they are they do now and even amongst those people uh pierce stood out for his dipsomania uh which may have been impacted by the fact that shortly before he became president 
his uh, son was killed in a railroad crash, uh, and he ended up not using a Bible to be sworn in for president because he was pissed at God. <laughs> the railroad crash is very, very harrowing. It's not just like killed in a railroad crash. He, like got, The son got like nearly decapitated in Pierce's arms. It was yeah, something, something that would drive, drive one to drink, to give Pierce a little bit yeah, of sympathy here. Would, would lead one to the siren song of John Barleycorn. <laughs> but yes, to attest to your, your handsomeness thing, he's got kind of a, an adult Timothy Chalamet thing going. Very much, A, a yes. grown-up Timothy Chalamet thing going. Meanwhile, the Whigs, similarly torn on slavery, end up nominating a different slavery-compromising northerner in General Winfield Scott, Pierce's old commander in the Mexican-American War. Who was still seen by the Whigs as uh, less pro-slavery than Fillmore, their, their, uh, nomin- their president at the time, uh, because he had not fucking signed the, uh, the Compromise of 1850. So we roll into the general election with two candidates who are both Northerners, who are both supporting compromising with the South on slavery and expansion, and who are both Mexican-American war veterans who are both running on nearly identical platforms. Uh, but just as you mentioned, with their, their sliders and stats slightly tweaked in different directions. Yeah. Uh, with the Whig Party increasingly collapsing around Fillmore's presidency and Winfield Scott proving an uninspiring candidate, uh, the at least half-charming Pierce positively blew out the Electoral College with a margin of 254 to 42, winning every state but Kentucky, Tennessee, Massachusetts, and Vermont. presidency was defined by attempting to satisfy everyone and pissing them all off in the process. And nothing embodies that more than the Kansas-Nebraska Act, perhaps the number one banger in the genre of 19th century compromises to make people just stop talking about slavery, but just make everything worse. Matt, want to guide us through this one and how it ends up becoming such a fuck up, it leads to something we call bleeding Kansas. So the Kansas-Nebraska Act, uh, fittingly begins uh, as a way to build a railroad. Uh, <laughs> while it, it, only after the Civil War will the building of railroads become the, the basis of sort of America's uh, productive economy. That, that uh, before the war, railroads started springing up across the country. Uh, and in fact, uh, the same day that the Compromise of 1850 was passed, Millard Fillmore uh, passed a law to create the first federal subsidy for railroad construction. Uh, and Stephen Douglas, the uh, Democratic senator from Illinois, a, a consummate man of the West who had made a fortune in land speculation and hoped to make even more on railroad speculation, uh, imagined that the cure for the sectional crisis was the settlement of the West. If we were settling in the West, if we're building railroads and infrastructure in the West, the, and, and, and exploiting the, the bounty of the West, then uh, the petty conflict over slavery would uh, lose its salience to politics. So Douglas is one of the first uh, political figures to get in his head the idea of a transcontinental railroad as a way to knit the country together, expedite Western expansion, and put a little green in your pockets if, you're, if you are an insider like uh, he was. Uh, but that raises a question. Will the uh, land that the railroads goes through be free or slave territory? Uh, now, the Compromise of 1850 had already cranked sectional tensions 
up to the highest they've been. So the uh, it was well understood that no state was going to be brought into the Union through congressional action, either free or slave, because it would have broken the incredibly uh, tense balance between the sections. So Douglas thought in the grand tradition of the kicked out can down the road compromises that had uh, kept the country together for that long to kick the can down the road a little more by <laughs> abdicating congressional responsibility and having the plate, the, the territories organize themselves and decide for themselves whether they would have slavery or uh, be free states. Popular sovereignty, it was called. It wasn't a new idea. Uh, Louis Cass ran for president in 1848 on a platform of popular sovereignty to solve the uh, Wilmot Proviso kerfuffle. Uh, so Douglas brought it back to solve the question of uh, the, the of what to do with the territories where the railroads would be built. The classic question of what's the matter with Kansas? Yes, that this is where this is where the matter with Kansas begins, uh, and. Those two territories would have their governments organized by the people who settled it, and then they would decide for themselves whether or not slavery would reign there. Uh, it seemed to people like Douglas the perfect solution to the problem. Now, it led, of course, to an instant explosion of anger in the north uh, because it meant that land north of the Missouri Compromise Line was going to be open to slavery. Uh, but, pa- but Pierce used his patronage whip to discipline the Democrats into going along with it. Now... This led to something that you could have imagined happening, but somehow seems to have surprised everybody when it did. Uh, Massive numbers of pro-slavery settlers from Missouri poured into Kansas and started uh, stuffing ballot boxes, intimidating anti-slavery settlers, uh, and setting up their own regime. Meanwhile, northern abolitionists led a campaign to send uh, free soil settlers into kansas in order to create uh to vie for power there uh henry ward beecher one of the most famous uh protestant ministers in the country uh helped organize a aid campaign that involved the sending of uh sharps repeating rifles to the kansas freestyle settlers that were called beecher's bibles and this (laughs) led to a situation of escalating violence the creation of rival territorial governments the f- sack of the free soil bastion of Lawrence, Kansas, by pro-slavery uh, settlers, and John Brown's Pottawatomie Massacre. By the fall of 1856, by the end of Pierce's term, Kansas was experiencing a territorial civil war that would be a prelude to the larger war to come. And meanwhile, during that entire period, the Pierce administration, doggedly pursuing its dofe strategy, continued and insisted upon recognizing the authority of the pro-slavery government, which was considered illegitimate to basically everyone in the North for the very simple reason that it was, uh, <laughs> that it was a, uh, it was a banana. It was a fraudulent government that was propped up by uh, fraudulent votes and violence uh, and was headquartered in a town of Lecompton. Uh, and the question of whether or not to accept the constitution that the Lecompton pro-slavery government drew up would end up becoming the central question uh, that precipitated the final breakup of the Democratic Party. So this all gravely weakens Pierce and the Democrats. Thomas Hart Benton would call the Kansas-Nebraska Act Douglas's, quote, farrago of nullities, incongruities, and inconsistencies. Go ahead now. (laughs) 
And it catches us up to the beginning of this episode, the founding of the Republicans. As support of Pierce and the Democrats was collapsing in North, the equal but opposite sectionalization gave rise to the Republicans. Despite entering the Democratic convention believing he had a shot, Pierce quickly found his support was evaporating over the increasing disaster of Kansas. It's the same thing that happened to poor Billy Fillmore. You get in there to do the job, which everyone understood to be paper over the differences and kick the can down the road, and then they get really mad at you when you do that and you can't get uh, another term. Uh, so the Democrats basically decide to switch out one of these guys for the other, swapping James Buchanan, another Southern appeasing Northerner, for the election of 1856. By May of 1856, as the election season was heating up, the tension between the parties had become so acrid it led to one of the most infamous incidents in U.S. congressional history. This would be on May 22nd, when Southern Democratic Representative Preston Brooks viciously attacked and caned Republican Senator Charles Sumner. Brooks had taken offense to a speech Sumner had given attacking Senator Andrew Butler, a relative of Brooks, for his involvement in the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Brooks assaulted Sumner with a heavy wood cane, beating him so severely he managed to shatter the cane and injure himself on the shards during the attack. It was a physical manifestation of the savage levels the sectional acrimony had risen to and helped bolster support for the fledgling Republican Party. Republican Evening Post editor William Cullen Bryant wrote, quote, Has it come to this, that we must speak with bated breath even in the presence of our southern masters? Are we two slaves for life, a target for their brutal blows, when we do not comport ourselves to please them? The answer to that question is yes, which was uh, clearly illustrated when uh, Preston Brooks was inundated with a ocean of canes mailed to him by sympathetic supporters from all over the South to congratulate him for his action. Meanwhile, the Southern democracy had so thoroughly linked the prosperity and even liberty of Southern men to their peculiar institution that you would see such mind-bending takes as the Richmond Inquirer publishing in 1856, quote, freedom is not possible without slavery. And I would argue that given their conception of slavery or their conception of freedom, their, the, this, this imagined world where there is no greater abstracted authority beyond your, beyond the borders of the land that you own. Uh, I think that that's true. And they understood it as such. I mean, we, we went into this specifically in the first episode, this link between freedom and property, uh, that slaves were their property and to be removed of their property was be, to be denied liberty. Property is liberty and, uh, and is freedom. Uh, and the only way that you can live the way these guys wanted to at leisure is like Athenians is if someone is doing all of the most horrible work that your system requires, but is not cannot access political remedies for their condition. Right. And we don't go into this, you know, as as a way of like drawing sympathy to this southern thing, but just to kind of underline the kind of psychosis that this very American equalization of property with liberty uh, bestows upon the Southerners at this time, and indeed upon all Americans in different ways throughout its history. Indeed. So, Matt, POV, you're the Republicans in 1856. The Democrats are in disarray, and the Whigs have all but disappeared. You're the hot young party, and you need a date to the ball. Who are you drafting for your first ever presidential candidate? So, the Republicans, like many fresh like fresh parties we've seen before, 
understand that to get in get your message across the key in america at that point was to find a guy on a horse <laughs> uh, and the guy they found was john c fremont uh, who is a adventurer a con artist explorer military officer a classic american uh, uh man on the move uh he parlayed his marriage to, to Democratic Senator Thomas Hart Benton, who we spoke of with the, uh, the ignominious uh, co- collaboration of flab traptions. Uh, he <laughs> parlayed his marriage to, to his daughter uh, into federal funding for three westward expeditions in the 1850s to explore the Oregon Trail uh, in different parts. So he sought explored the Rockies. Uh, he went to or- Washington State. Uh, went to California, where he conducted multiple massacres of Native Americans. The kind of stuff that gets you a cool nickname, the Pathfinder, <laughs> as they called it. Uh, during the Mexican War, he helped secure California for the United States and ended up being court-martialed for insubordination when he wasn't named military governor of the new territory. He stayed in California, where he was briefly a free soil Democratic senator after it became a state, and l- Republicans lured him over to, to his their party and nominated him in 1856, is their dashing man on a horseback. Uh, and Democrats were left with no choice but to mash that button that they've been hitting since Van Buren, the northern man with southern sympathies. In the eminently qualified, uh, in fact, perhaps the single most qualified man to ever run for president, but supremely off-putting form of James Buchanan. James Buchanan was born April 23rd, 1791, in Cove Gap, Pennsylvania. His father was a prosperous merchant, and James was trained as a lawyer. He set up shop in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where he would live for 60 years. Buchanan moved up through the Pennsylvania House of Representatives as a Federalist to the U.S. House of Representatives, became a Democrat after 1824, was President Jackson's minister to Russia in 1832, then served as senator until 1845. He was James K. Polk's Secretary of State, presiding over the massive expansion of U.S. territory during that administration. Then, Franklin Pierce's ambassador to the U.K. Being overseas for the Pierce administration proved valuable for Buchanan as he was able to avoid most of the stink of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which put him in a favorable position for being the Democratic nominee in 1856. In the nominating convention, Pierce collapsed from lack of support, becoming the only elected U.S. president to be denied renomination by his party. So, sucks for you, Franklin Pierce. Thanks for nothing, Frank. <laughs> Go back to New Hampshire. Buchanan's only real challenge came from Illinois Senator Stephen A. Douglas, but after the young senator received assurances he could run in 1860, his name was withdrawn and Buchanan was nominated. The election of 1856 is fairly straightforward. Buchanan wins. But we see here the effects of this final pre-war party realignment. The Republican Party was too new and weak and still competing with uh, Millard Fillmore and the nativist know-nothings to overcome the Democrats. But the sectional party realignment is in place. The Republicans sweep the northernmost states, from Iowa to Michigan and Ohio to New York and all of New England, where anti-slavery sentiment was the strongest. The Democrats take everything below the Mason-Dixon line except for Maryland itself, which goes to Fillmore. The election had hinged on slavery and slavery expansion. The Democrats leveraged the argument that it's these northern Republican abolitionists who are the crazy ones, that they keep pushing this anti-slavery shit. They're the ones that are going to cause the southern states to secede. 
which is a kind of classic abusive partner, you're going to make me hurt myself argument. But, you know, hey, in the end, they weren't wrong. Buchanan gets called one of the worst presidents of all time, but to give him an ounce of sympathy, basically anyone who got in there after Pierce would probably get that title. Yeah, and if Pierce, if they'd switched it up and Pierce had been the guy and at that point, it would have been him too. But that being said, Buchanan didn't really do himself any favors. First, before he was even inaugurated, he was leaning on the Supreme Court to issue a broad ruling in the Dred Scott v. Sanford case, encouraging the courts to use it as a way to end the debate on limiting slavery in the territories. Two days after his inauguration, the Taney Court did just that, not only ruling that Scott and indeed all black people cannot be considered citizens under the Constitution and thus have no standing to sue, but also that Congress had no authority to regulate slavery in the territories. The Dred Scott decision really underlines the degree to which uh, the Supreme Court, as much as we imagine it to be the ultimate arbiter uh, of America's legal codes and, and its, its constitutional uh, mandates, really only has the power that we politically invest in it, uh, as we saw with Jackson when uh, they vo- they ruled against uh, Indian removal in Georgia. He told them to piss up a rope. And while Buchanan and many other northern Democrats thought that the Dred Scott decision would put slavery behind everybody, uh, the fact that it was the really the only political issue at the time meant that it uh, ended up just being a speed bump. Even though the court had made this ruling that should have solved all of these questions, it had uh, essentially no political force because there was no political will to accept it. Uh, And the story of the creeping authority of the the Supreme Court really is the story of the creeping uh, depolitization of the American people, where we, over time, acceded to a greater and greater degree of technocratic rule as political questions became less and less uh, vital uh, and that we've essentially allowed the Supreme Court to uh, become now what it has what it has become, which is this uh, this all powerful uh, abrogator of legislation. Uh, But that that only persists uh, as much as people allow it to. And Dred Scott is a, a perfect example of that. Secondly, Buchanan sought, above all, a speedy resolution to the Kansas situation. Matt, why don't you take us through Bleeding Kansas Part 2, the Lecompton years? So, well, so so through ballot stuffing, intimidation, fraud, murder, uh, the border ruffian, pro-slavery, mostly Missouri-based Kansas settlers who set up their uh, government in Lecompton wrote up a constitution that would have made Kansas a slave state and tipped the balance of power in the Senate towards the pro-slavery forces. Now, even government commissioners who had uh, gone to Kansas to to see the uh, electoral system uh, had said that it was illegitimate based on violence and fraud, and that was known throughout the North. Uh, but the South universally demanded the recognition of the Lecompton Constitution, uh, and Buchanan, of course, complied. And this issue, the Lecompton Constitution, becomes the red line for Northern Democrats, whereby the sectional compromise, the Doe-Face Pact, is broken. Because Douglas, as we saw, the, the next in line to be the Doe-Face to take the Democratic mantle in 1860, cannot support the Lecompton Constitution not because of any abhorrence to slavery, like many uh, uh, prominent Northern Democrats, Douglas 
had absolutely no moral qualms about slavery, deeply racist, and, and was honestly just more than anything annoyed that he had to deal with it. But he knew that his supporters, the voters of the North, would no longer accept uh, Southern maximalist demands, and that if he accepted the Southern terms, he would lose his Northern base. Uh, and so that meant that Lecompton became the flashpoint uh, between the Northern and Southern sections of the Democratic Party and would destroy the doe-face model. Yes, as you were referencing right at the beginning, it is the crisis of a constituency uh, for any of these policies. Yes. All this is a disaster for what remains of Democratic Party unity. Stephen Douglas and the Northern and Midwest Dems are now firmly against Buchanan, the South, and the remaining Northern doe-faces. Meanwhile, the combination of Dred Scott decision and this Lecompton debacle has succeeded in pissing even more Northerners off, pushing anti-slavery Democrats as well as any remaining know-nothings and Whigs into the Republican Party. And in December 1859, John Brown was hanged for his raid on Harper's Ferry, part of his attempt to incite a slave revolt through the South. His last words were, reportedly, This is a beautiful country. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. And that, that raid on Harper's Ferry really is the last cherry can of gasoline into the bonfire because it signaled, because the, as, as the response of the Southerners to the uh, Sumner caning horrified the North, the sympathetic Northern response to the Brown raid horrified Southerners uh, and drove many of the more uh, ardent secessionists among them further into their conviction that they could no longer peaceably cohabitate with the North. And they had to do like, like a Benghazi pa- panel in the house to determine if there was any like Northern conspiracy with John Brown at the time to, to yeah. really Which emphasize. Kind of was <laughs> secret six and all that. It, it, there were, there were a lot of people in it uh, with respectable titles and stuff who knew what John Brown was up to. And in fact, uh, gave him financial support. Uh, as some Northerners would say at the time, John Brown ain't going away. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln was born February 12, 1809, in a log cabin near Hodgenville, central Kentucky. Abe's father lived a life between labor and landowning, occasionally working jobs like carpentry, occasionally getting together enough funds to purchase some land. Disputes over property titles moved the family west to Indiana, and after Abe's mother's death, the family pushed out to Illinois. Lincoln had little formal education, but was a voracious reader and largely self-taught. Seeking to avoid a life of farm work, Lincoln moved out on his own to New Salem, Illinois. Abe worked as a partner in a general store, a surveyor, and other small jobs, while he slowly taught himself law. After proving himself competent around town and being encouraged by his neighbors, and partially to help offset his debts, Lincoln successfully ran for state legislator in 1834, 36, 38, and 1840. During this time, Lincoln was a, quote, old-line Whig, admirer of Henry Clay, supporting internal improvements and federal control over banks. He opposed slavery on moral grounds, though he was not an abolitionist, wanting slavery contained to the South, but the South's rights to the institution respected. 
Towards the end of this period would have been the time when he hung out and got drunk with Martin Van Buren as uh, MVB did his post-presidency chill-out tour. Through his self-studies, Lincoln got himself admitted to the Illinois Bar in 1836 and would become a successful frontier lawyer. Also, after a few aborted courtships with various ladies, Lincoln settled down with Mary Todd, marrying her on November 4th, 1842. In 1846, one election to the U.S. House of Representatives as a Whig was during his one term as rep in Washington. He challenged the Polk administration's justifications for the Mexican-American War, demanding to know the spot on U.S. soil where Mexicans had shed American blood. Throughout this, he built his reputation as a lawyer, serving basically every legal function in the still frontierish state of Illinois. He defended riverboats against bridge companies, then bridge companies against riverboats. He won a murder case by establishing the moon was in the wrong position to provide light for a key witness's testimony. He even obtained a patent for a kind of flotation device to aid in boat navigation in shallow water. He is the only U.S. president to hold a patent. Cool dude. I especially love his foray into moon law. The lunar lawyer, Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> As the Whig Party continued to crumble, Lincoln moved to the Republican Party, attending their 1856 convention where he was considered, but not chosen, for vice president. He campaigned for the Republicans throughout Illinois, and though Fremont lost, Illinois elected a Republican governor. And in 1858, when it was time to put up a Senate candidate against Stephen Douglas, Lincoln got the nod. And this is where he dropped the classic banger, quote, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. Yes, Lincoln believed in the promise of America as a Republican utopia, a, a, a republic of liberty, but not in the Southern sense, not in the sense of dominion over the land as, as a uh, suzerain, but rather as uh, a nation of smallholding farmers whose liberty was secured by their ability to sustain themselves on the land, an emphasis on sustain themselves, not forcing others to uh, sustain them on the land, sustaining themselves on the land. Uh, and that, that self-sufficiency would be the basis for political liberty. Uh, and that was incompatible with the plantation slavery. Uh, and so slavery for Lincoln was an obstacle to America fulfilling its democratic, uh, its Republican destiny. Uh, and although he was certainly racist by our standards, uh, and by the, the era of the time, he believed that there was not a social equality between the races. Uh, his opposition to slavery was not just uh, based on the free labor orthodoxy. Uh, Lincoln recognized black people as fundamentally of the same stuff as whites and found the reality of slavery abhorrent as a result. Uh, but he did not have the, like, the keen sense of, of outrage that, that the more militant uh, abolitionists did, the guys like, uh, like John Brown uh, and that difference is why Lincoln became a politician instead of being an abolitionist activist. Uh, and it's also why at that point and throughout the, into the early parts of the civil war, Lincoln favored colonization of former slaves uh, it, after the end of, of slavery. Uh, because if slavery was to end in America, as guys like Lincoln uh, wanted it to, the, the question would then be what to do about this population of former slaves. 
they would either have to be uh, eradicated from the land somehow uh, or integrated into white society. And for a pragmatic politician and racist guy like Lincoln, the thought the, of the political uh, task of integrating uh, uh, former slaves into white society was simply too vast to conceive of, before the Civil War, that is. Uh, and so the most humane solution that many people had came to, such as Henry Clay, who was also an ardent colonizer, was uh, the totally crackpotted and in, uh, non-viable scheme of uh, sending former slaves back to colonize Africa. Lincoln debated Douglas in a series of fight night debates where Lincoln articulated a moral, if not quite abolitionist argument against slavery, saying it should be contained where it already existed. Though he lost the Senate race, Lincoln jumped to national prominence in the Republicans and by 1860 was in conversation for Republican presidential nomination. And just as an aside, that hilariously kind of reminds me of Beto O'Rourke of all people, at least an attempted career path. <laughs> failed failed Senate attempt to presidential nominee. He, As one of his law partners said, his ambition was the little engine that knew no rest. The guy was <laughs> always looking for the main chance. It's also funny. I don't know if you, you ever saw this. There was like a, an early meme or like a Reader's Digest thing that it like outlines every of Lincoln's failures. You know, like in 1832, his general store collapsed. In 1836, he lost his law partnership. In 18... 18- 50 he lost re-election to the house uh in blah 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 he did he didn't get this and, and in 1860 he was elected president as like a, a you know a, a bromide to like never give up hope or anything but and you know, then when- everything was great after that <laughs> it was all smooth sailing for lincoln after he got uh, elected president but you know actually going back through his career like he was successful basically the entire time yeah no he was uh one of those dudes uh, he was he was a shooting star. The charisma, the brains, he was the whole package, folks. Uh, he was on his grind. He was he was doing he was on his grind. He was doing dramatic moonlaw returns. He 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 did the uh the classic Columbo and uh, and one more thing. Uh, just what day was it? Uh, there could not possibly have been a full moon on the day that you describe. Uh, anyway, yep. love that moonlaw. But that brings us to the election of 1860 which ends up being a four-way slugfest between Lincoln and a fractured Democratic Party. Matt, why don't you take us through the election of 1860? So we've talked a lot so far about how northern public opinion is being pushed in an increasingly anti-slavery direction uh, and how you've got political figures uh, like our boy Thurlow Weed and William Sunder in New York pushing it in that direction. But at the same time that this is happening, Southern opinion is similarly becoming more and more extremist, uh, and a small group of uh, what they what were known as fire eaters, the most uh, intensely uh, pro-slavery uh, journalists and and politicians in the South, uh, concentrated largely in South Carolina, uh, had by eighteen sixty decided that. That Lincoln was right, that a house divided itself indeed could not stand. And as a result, secession was not only uh, preferable to staying in the Union, but was in fact inevitable. And so these guys, led by uh, a couple of dudes named William Yancey and Robert Barnwell Rett, go into the 1860 uh, Democratic Convention in Charleston with the determination to force such terms on the Northern Democrats. Uh, that the party would have to split uh, because they saw then 
in in that they saw a Republican president and the ammunition to get uh, the bulk of Southern elite political opinion, which was not uh, all as extreme. There were plenty of there were plenty of <clears throat> leaders in the Southern states who had absolutely no interest in seceding from the Union. You had the fact that a lot of uh, non-slave owning Southerners in these states who voted. Uh, even if many of their votes were gerrymandered out of uh, out of influence, who were vehemently opposed to seceding from the Union, it was at this point still a minority view that secession was was uh, something to be sought, uh, and these guys hoped that a Republican president would be the thing to bring them over, which it in fact did. And so, at the convention, uh, the Southern intransigence led. Uh, the Northern Democrats to put their foot down over the Lecompton Treaty, which led to a Southern walkout of the convention, uh, which eventually led to the Northern Rump Democrats nominating Stephen Douglas for president, uh, the Southern Democrats nominating uh, James Buchanan's vice president, John C. Breckinridge, uh, as the pro-Southern, uh, pro-Lecompton Democrat, uh, and in a hilarious in a, in a hilarious bid by the remnants of the uh, old Southern Whigs who had been around Henry Clay uh, and who still fixated on the notion of compromise, bridging these now unbridgeable divides, nominated John Bell, who is a Clay protege, to embody the can't we all just get along approach uh, to the sectional crisis. Uh, and they all ran against... Uh, the now the now dominant in the North Republican Party. So uh, William Seward, who is a senator from New York, Thurlow Weed's boy, the guy who had gone with Weed from anti-Mason to uh, Whig and then to the Democrats, as opposed to the Fillmoreites who went to the know-nothings, had succeeded in making the Republicans the ruling party in New York. Uh, and hopefully the ruling party of the country after 1860 and Seward as the most prominent Republican politician in the country went into the convention as the assumed front runner, but his status as the most prominent Republican meant that he had a lot of baggage because here in the North, there is no appetite for, for forcing a secessionist crisis. Uh, Republicans, they want to contain slavery. They want to carry out a, a policy of sort of, isolating and slowly starving slavery of land by stopping its expansion into the West while allowing it to maintain itself where it existed. Uh, a plan that might have worked and which was what the fire eaters saw in the future and what they wanted to avoid by seceding. Uh, but it did not. But that strategy did not demand a civil war. And for most of them, uh, would have what most Republicans would have much preferred avoiding a sectional conflict. So Seward, who had given a speech about the sectional crisis where he referred to it as an irrepressible conflict, was considered to be too uh, extreme by many of the delegates. They were worried that his uh, nomination would be too inflammatory. And so Abraham Lincoln, a man of the West, where anti-slavery sentiment was less morally charged than it was in the East uh, and, and who had cultivated a reputation as a relative moderate on slavery, emerged as the alternative to Seward. Uh, and he gets the nomination. And Seward, who had a bunch of champagne 
chilling in New York, waiting to pop when he got the nom, <laughs> uh, had to go home uh, owned. I also like uh, John Bell's maintaining the clay legacy of being a uh, national loser past uh, clay's uh, lifespan, you know? Yeah. He, he really did that tradition though. The Western wig tradition is really just, it's sideshow Bob in the rakes all the way through the <laughs> antebellum period. So the election of 1860 ends up basically being two regionally specific races in the North. It's Lincoln versus Douglas, the rematch. And in the South, it's a decision between the Unionist Democrats of Bell and Douglas and Breckenridge, who represents the deep Southern issues, uh, and a hope of possibly throwing the election to the House of Representatives and, as you were referencing, deliberately provoking sectional crisis. Lincoln wasn't even on the ballot in 10 of the Southern states. Despite this, the Republicans swept the North and were able to gain a clear victory along sectional lines. Even if the Democrats had been unified around a single candidate, Lincoln would then have possibly lost California, Oregon, and some New Jersey electors and still would have had enough electoral votes for a clear victory. The election was held November 6th, 1860. On November 10th, the South Carolina legislature called for a convention in December to decide on secession. They voted to secede on December 20th. I don't remember his name, but I do want to bring up one South Carolinian unionist who said around this time about South Carolina, too small for a republic, too big for an insane asylum. <laughs> the Civil War. Now, this is not a Civil War podcast. We can't go into all the details of the war or even like some of them, really any of them. No war here, because if we even start, we will lose Matt to war nerdery. If we give him an inch, he's going to be hollering about the multiplicity of General Ambrose Burnside's failures in no time. The war's obviously fascinating, a prolonged cataclysmic event that shapes the country politically, psychically, and spiritually ever since. We hope to have a bonus episode, kind of diving into the Civil War itself and how it specifically shaped American politics after this. Uh, or you can just go watch some Ken Burns. Can't speak to the politics there, but boy, can my man get some compelling emotion out of some old photos and some fiddle music. DJ, drop that Akashin farewell. <laughs> you like Ken Burns, Matt? It's, he's good. Come on. Yeah. He, he's the guy who figured out that you could pan over a still photograph to give an impression of, uh, of motion. It's genius. Yes. Uh, as a filmmaker, I'm a big fan of, of Burns, but, you know, we're not reviewing his stuff here. We are going to talk about how the war shaped Lincoln and the office. But before we do that, we have to go back to Buchanan. There were several congressional attempts to, again, compromise their way out of this shit. Proposed constitutional amendments preventing the federal government from interfering with slavery where it exists. Amendments codifying the Missouri Compromise into the Constitution. But the ship on compromise had sailed. And here's where Buchanan does some shit that really gets him called the worst president ever. Which is failing to prevent or even attempt to stop seceding states from seizing federal property and arsenals. He just lets them have it. It's all Democrats know how to do at that point. When the, when the Southerner wants something from you, you, you give it to them. That, that's, that's the only thing they have in their what to do playbook. And so he just kept doing it until the very end because he was completely constrained by the coalition and the political culture that had gotten him in power. 
And then there is some good faith debate about whether Buchanan was just a bumbler, a loaf, or a villain of an action, or if he proactively was rooting for the South. But I think when you're letting rebelling states just walk away with federal war material, you know, it's, it's telling. By March 3rd, 1861, Buchanan had failed to resupply the garrison at Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor, which was becoming a clear center of tensions. That day, he received a letter from the fort saying supplies were low. The next day, Abraham Lincoln took office. Here, you deal with this. Bye-bye. <laughs> Good luck. Time to chill out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and eventually write a book that's like, uh, if I didn't do it. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln entered office pursuing peace. Assuring the South he had no intention of interfering with slavery where it existed. Quoting himself in his inaugural, quote, I have no purpose, directly or indirectly, to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. Lincoln was committed to preserving the Union, but would also not aggress on the South, nor surrender any forts. And so, on April 12, 1861, Confederate forces opened fire on the Union troops at Fort Sumter, and the war was on. And I just want to put a little aside because I think it's darkly comic here. Uh, after 36 hours of bombardment from South Carolinian forces on Fort Sumter, uh, Major Anderson, who was commanding the base, finally negotiated not a surrender, but that he would evacuate troops after they had suffered no losses in the bombardment. But as part of that deal, Major Anderson demanded an 100-gun salute to the flag of the United States as demonstration of the commitment to the union. And during that a hundred gun salute, a uh, stack of cartridges exploded, killing two privates there uh, who ended up being the first deaths of the civil war, which I just think is a, again, a darkly comedic blunder of surviving the 36 hour bombardment and then demanding to shoot at the flag and blowing up some of your own troops doing it. <laughs> what could go wrong? Just a little flag shoot. Yeah. So we're going to attempt to take a more global perspective on Lincoln's presidency, outlining a few key areas it's important to look at a man in the office. The first century of American history landing as a mortar shell in one individual's lap. Matt, we are trying to take a bit more of a material approach to history here, but can we address here perhaps the greatness of the man? So Lincoln is, a, I think, a singular uh, figure in American history and certainly singular amongst the presidents. Uh, but it is important to remember that the thing that made him singular was something that was not the product of his you know, individuality, his soul, his, his will to power, but uh, a, uh, a happenstance that, that, that he appeared at the moment in history uh, when the, the machinery of uh, American politics had seized up uh, where the constitutional order, uh, which was always built on sand uh, and on a uh, willful denial of the conflict at the heart of the project, finally uh, sunk. Uh, and it was only in that context that he was able to fulfill this role in this historical, what seems to be in retrospect, destiny as, as the savior of this of this republic uh and i think the things that make him that figure are yes the contingency of emerging at that period uh but then also dying when he did uh and allowing him to exist as a 
avatar of values that and and of possibilities that over time uh el- evaporated from uh from the 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 period of history from America's potential uh and so he kind of resides as this as this uh embodied spirit of the, the of all that was good essentially all that was progressive uh in the fight for human dignity in the fight against the uh delusional and atavistic fantasies of unrestrained baronial power that under girded the american project uh but that he is able to do that because he died before he had to try to fulfill any of that potential all all of the the changes that were wrought on him by the war and his resp- and when we talk about his greatness it comes from his response to these changing conditions his 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 voyage from someone at the beginning of the war who was fully fixated on maintaining the union at all costs, whose understanding of the implications of ending slavery uh, was not fully formed. Uh, but the credit we must give Lincoln is that as the war progressed and as the death toll rose and as the cost of keeping this country together rose, uh, he recognized that not only would the maintenance of the union require the, the full destruction of slavery, uh, but that it would also require redefinition of citizenship, uh, of the role of the government in people's lives, and had important implications for what the economy would be. And most people who seek the kind of power Lincoln did, in the seeking of it, become hardened into uh, an instrument of that ambition. And you see in the presidents who led up to the Civil War that very phenomenon like Buchanan just selling off, giving away the, the, the literal army stores uh, as he went out the door uh, because by that point, what had been expedient to him to gain power had become the entirety of his uh, understanding of politics. Lincoln, because of the fluidity of the Civil War, uh, was forced to, to confront his uh, preconceived notions and challenge them. Uh, and it made him aware of his insufficiencies and made him challenge those too. Uh, and so with Lincoln, you see a figure who provi- who does show the, uh, it shows the possibilities in the presidency that we all secretly dream are there now. We, that when we vote for a president, when we engage in presidential politics, when we dream about what could be, it is Lincoln and the figure of Lincoln and the presidency of Lincoln that we imagine. But uh, what made that possible was the dissolution of the constitutional order. Most importantly, uh, it was really consecrated more than anything uh, by his martyrdom. To cover Lincoln... Let's look at a few key areas of his presidency. The first is, of course, his command of the war effort. Lincoln was a kind of armchair general, relying on books to augment his knowledge and to make up for the coterie of fuck-up generals that infested the highest ranks of the Union Army. He particularly relied on General Henry Halleck's Elements of Military Art and Science, which I only bring up because apparently General Halleck was known as Old Brains 
Uh, so I guess he chose a, a good book to uh, study up on. He got that brain. He got that brain. Matt, do you want to take us through the condition of the Union Army and Lincoln's approach to war? So when the South, South starts seceding, the United States military uh, has 16,000 members and a large chunk of the leadership of the, of the army is made up of uh, patriotic chivalric Southerners who uh, were carrying out their families' cavalier military traditions and who left with the rest of the, uh, the Southern federal political and governmental establishment to go set up shop in Richmond. Uh, and that meant that Lincoln had to build an army on the fly. Uh, it started with a request for 90-day volunteers uh, to be formed through state militias uh, and ended with an army uh, that w- was over a million strong. Uh, and that process was arduous. It required a great deal of inefficiency, waste, and, uh, and trial and error. Uh, and it involved some insane exigencies that just blew through a lot of the pre-existing limiters on American federal power. Uh, like they'd been fighting about, uh, about precious specie for 20 years. <laughs> and with a stroke of a pen, the United States government uh, enacts a fiat currency uh, with no backing by, uh, by precious metals in order to fucking pay for this goddamn war. But that pr- process involves having to use a military that was small, uh, insular, uh, and relatively inexperienced. And the commanders of the, the army uh, were made up largely of uh, hacks, uh, political appointees, uh, and Democrats. Uh, and that is an under-noted uh, current in the difficulty that Lincoln had getting decent commanding forces is that a lot of the uh, Northern Officer Corps were anti-abolitionists, were to some degree Southern sympathizers, and while they insisted on fighting a war to maintain the union that they that they uh, supported and cared about, they did not want to do it at the cost of a social revolution, which is what many of them saw as the inevitable outcome of a large-scale conflict. Uh, and the cowardice and indecision of General uh, George McClellan, uh, one of the most disastrous commanders of the Union forces who uh, squandered a lot of... Uh, his material advantages in the early years of the war, uh, squatting in terror, uh, retreating from vastly inferior forces while imagining himself to be outnumbered. His uh, incompetence was generated by, among other things, his Napoleonic complex, uh, but also uh, his conviction as a Democrat that the war needed to be ended quickly and with minimal disruption to uh, Southern institutions. Uh, and Lincoln's role as commander in chief is a process of running through uh, the incompetent top layer of the ossified federal uh, government or federal uh, military until emerging from the actual conflict itself. He is able to find some diamonds in the rough like William Sherman and, uh, and Ulysses Grant to fight a war that as it went on acquired a greater dimension than a simple matter of maintaining the constitutional authority of the federal government. So Lincoln's prosecution of the war then affects his evolving views on slavery. 
Lincoln would again and again state that emancipation was not his primary objective, but rather the preservation of the Union. As he wrote in August 1862, quote, my paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union, and it is not either to save or destroy slavery. But his ability to be shaped by circumstance eventually brought these two objectives in line and would make them the same. Yes, because it becomes clear as the war progresses that since slavery was the cause of the war, that therefore, by, by definition, the war could only end with the destruction of slavery. Uh, and that took time because the world of 1860 was one where the political will to see slavery abolished and therefore deal with the question of integrating millions of former slaves of a different of a of a subject race into the American society, into the American social order was simply inconceivable. Uh, and in fact, a lot of the Southerners assumed that the war would be won easily because Yankees wouldn't fight for slaves. At the end of the day, they would get a bloody nose and walk away. But as the conflict deepened and as as the sacrifices mounted, the uh, the demand for the stakes to to raise to meet that sacrifice grew. Uh, and so and the reality of slavery when northern forces encountered it in the south, which they did very quickly as northern forces uh invaded and, and occupied Southern territory and encountered plantation slavery, encountered uh, former slaves who flooded union lines as refugees. This confrontation with slavery as it existed in the South uh, also became a war measure because denying uh, the South access to its, its slavery labor force compromised their ability to fight. And so the military demands of, of neutralizing the South ended up over time overlapping with the the moral demand for the war to have a a purpose uh and also the uh the realpolitik desire to see the southern cause undermined uh in world opinion because one of the great fears of the war from the northern perspective is that the confederate government would be recognized uh by the powers of europe specifically great britain which was at that point, dependent on Southern cotton for its booming textile economy. But tying the war to the cause of slavery made that harder uh, because European public opinion, specifically British public opinion, was by that point strongly against slavery. So all these things over time run together. Uh, And so Lincoln responds to this by being, as we said, flexible. He goes from his initial resistance to uh, highlighting slavery as a war aim in order to keep those border states from from getting too too jumpy to issuing the Emancipation Proclamation in 1862, uh, freeing all slaves in rebelling territory, but not in loyal border states. Uh, And it leads to, after that, the enlistment of former slaves into uh, the federal army. Uh, and the use of them in combat. And it really is the uh, formation of black military units and their performance in battle that is the most important single element in moving Lincoln and Northern public opinion uh, towards reckoning with the reality of black equality as something that would have to be uh, engaged with 
uh, if slavery was to be defeated and if the Union was to be preserved. And so by 18, by uh, the Gettysburg Address in uh, November of 1863, uh, Lincoln is saying, We are highly resolved that these dead shall not have died in vain and that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. And it's that new birth of freedom that by the end of the war uh, is uh, something that Lincoln and the North in general is for the first time really uh, reckoning with. But also important, on the domestic front, or at least not an open rebellion domestic front, was the Homestead Act of 1862. The act opened millions of acres of territorial public land to citizens willing to work it. It offered a three-step process to claim 160 acres, which is like a quarter square mile of land, uh, by making an application, improving the land, then filing a deed. And in this, as we like to point out, it offsets the political pressures of the war and the anticipation of emancipation with that one great force of American politics. Free real estate. It's free real estate. It's free real estate, folks. Yes. In, the 18, in 1860, uh, the Republicans didn't just run on slavery. They, one of their most popular slogans was, vote yourself a farm. Vote yourself a farm. Yes. Their direct appeal to the, to the, the voters of the North was, if we contain slavery in the South, the West will be opened to free white labor that will not have to compete with subject uh, slave labor. Uh, and that ap- appeal is, is the, was the basis of Lincoln and the Republican Party's vision for that Republican uh, utopian idea that we talked about, where, where, where our, our, we will be able to resist uh, any sort of subordination to authority by virtue of our ability to continue to, to push out and sustain ourselves on the land. And it was a very, very appealing vision to many Northern uh, voters uh, because as uh, uh, East and the Middle West became more and more settled, uh, the promise, the opportunity inherent in the land begins to get divvied up and controlled. Uh, by stakeholders, generally people who already had money beforehand. And the people who show up late find themselves uh, subject to having to work with uh, having to work for others, uh, being unable to uh, have that uh, American experience of, of, of individual sustenance. Uh, and the Homestead Act is the next step in, in extending the, uh, the social release valve away from conflict in more settled parts of the country and to keep the dream of American yeoman liberty alive. All of this is, of course, at the direct cost to the Native Americans who as out, or are outside of our polity and whose land can be expropriated with no political cost. And so the Homestead Act was enacted, something that would have been very difficult like many of the uh, Republican policies of the Civil War era to have been passed if those Southern representatives were still in Congress. So with a stroke of a pen, Lincoln does what it took centuries of bloody warfare in Europe to accomplish and which never happened in Latin America. And that is a massive redistribution of land uh, to the landless, basically. 
and the fulfillment of the synthesized Republican concept of Whig internal improvements plus uh, Jeffersonian yeoman autonomy. And again, we see this explicitly as a way to, uh, as we mentioned, offset social and political pressures of the lower classes in the existing states. As abolitionist journalist Gamaliel Bailey, which is another one of those great 19th century names, Gamaliel Bailey wrote of the uh, 1858 attempts at the Homestead Bill, quote, cheap land would secure uh, to all our large cities a safety drain. So people getting riled up in the cities, just send them off, give them some free land out west. And as you just touched on, Matt, uh, finally, the dark corollary to the prosecution of the war and the freeing of land in the West for settlement is Lincoln's policies towards Native Americans. The most significant event of the Lincoln administration uh, regarding Native American policy was the Sioux Uprising uh, in Missouri, in in Minnesota, called the Dakota War uh, in 1862. Uh, And what was happening there is, is that as the... West was being, quote-unquote, settled. The existing Native American tribes were being, were having their lands slowly but surely chipped away at, their, their treaties abrogated, uh, and their subsistence depending upon, over time, subsidy from the federal government uh, in the form of payments in exchange for land. Uh, in exchange for access to land, Native tribes were given uh, a subsidy by the federal government for food that because they were no longer having access to their traditional hunting grounds. But these arrangements were always uh, wildly corrupt and inefficient and led to shortages and justified anger uh, uh, on these, these early reservations. And so in 1862, uh, uh, Lakota Sioux uh, in the Minnesota Territory uh, staged a massive uprising uh, against the Minnesota uh, white settlers leading to battles with Union troops, leading to uh, the massacre of settlers, the massacre of Native Americans, uh, and finally the surrender of, of uh, the rebellious Sioux and the condemnation to death of uh, 300 uh, uh, Sioux uh, warriors. Uh, Lincoln uh, commuted the sentences of most of them, but it still led to the largest mass hanging in American history, when 38 uh, Sioux were executed uh, in Minnesota on December 26, 1862. So despite that very ignominious black spot on Lincoln's record, throughout the prosecution of the war, at all these crucial decision points, Lincoln's ability to evolve his views to meet the moment gain him his deserved historical reputation. But for all Lincoln's good, wise, noble actions, his legacy is irrevocably tied to this one terrible historically disastrous one. Andrew Johnson was born December 29th, 1808 in Raleigh, North Carolina. He grew up in poverty. He was apprenticed to a local tailor at age 10 and was legally bound to this man until he was 21. Dissatisfied with the apprenticeship, he ran away with his brother at age 15 and after bouncing around the South a bit, eventually settled in Greenville, Tennessee. In Greenville, Johnson's tailoring business prospered. At age 18, he married Eliza McArdle. Their marriage was officiated by Justice of the Peace Mordecai Lincoln, who was the cousin of Thomas Lincoln, the father of a guy named Abraham. Weird, wild connections in the uh, frontier west of the early 19th century America. 
Johnson developed his love of learning and debate and eventually speech-making. My man loved to talk. And through this, Johnson came into Tennessee state politics as an advocate for working men. He was elected to town alderman, state house, and then state senator. And then U.S. representative in 1842 as a Democrat. He was pro-slavery, anti-abolitionist, but in that particular mid-19th century Democrat way where he was also a champion of poor laborers and workers. He supported Polk's Mexican-American War and introduced a version of the Homestead Bill to provide lands in the new Western territories. After getting gerrymandered out of his congressional seat in 1852, he ran for and was elected to governor of Tennessee. In that position, he supported reforming the public school system, creating public libraries, and of course, supported slavery. In 1857, he was chosen by the Tennessee legislature to be U.S. Senator and returned to Washington, where again he pushed the Homestead Bill. But tensions over the status of slavery in the territories he wished to open for settling again and again scuttled the bill, mostly due to the opposition from his Southern peers. When Lincoln was elected in 1860, Johnson became the most prominent Southern Unionist as he was the one who stuck around. Literally everyone else from the South left. He returned to Tennessee to argue against secession, and when the state voted to secede, he literally fled back to D.C., getting shot at along the way. He would be the only senator from a seceded state to remain in the Union Senate. And guess fucking what? With all his stupid Southern peers out of the Senate, Johnson's long-championed homestead bill was finally passed, as we talked about before. But Johnson at that point had already left the Senate, as he had been appointed military governor of Tennessee. There, he initially obtained an exemption for the state from Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, though he finally came around in 1863 saying, quote, if the institution of slavery denies the government the right of agitation and seeks to overthrow it, then the government has a clear right to destroy it. And so, in 1864... The end of the war seemed in sight, and Lincoln was looking towards the future for his presidential ticket. Johnson, a Southern War Democrat who had stayed loyal throughout the conflict, would send a message of unity as Veep. But he wasn't a sure thing. Matt, the 1864 vice presidential shot is a hinge point in history I know you are very interested in. Care to elaborate? We talk a lot on this show about the structural forces that determine historical outcomes, especially historical outcomes in a bourgeois dictatorship like the United States. But those structural forces are always contending with the chance and contingency that determines the outcome of individual events. Some periods are so thin with meaningful contingency that looking backward, it's difficult to see any other outcome emerging. But there are also periods so thick with possibility and the efflorescence of random outcomes that the seemingly overpowering economic and social structures dissolve and possibilities open up that would otherwise seem fantastical. War is usually one of those periods, and the American Civil War is certainly one. The idea of half a million Americans dying to end slavery and by the end of the 1860s inscribing black suffrage in the Constitution would have been inconceivable to the vast majority of Americans before the war. Beyond the issue of slavery, the war also created a federal government and industrial economy that were outside of anyone's idea of the American state's capacity before the war. It was the fighting of the war, the horrible cost and blood, the confrontation with the horrible reality of Southern slavery that changed Northern opinion and made ending slavery the central struggle of the time. That shift is best exemplified by President Lincoln himself, who began the war telling Horace Greeley, quote, if I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. 
By his second inaugural address, four bloody years later, Lincoln said, Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, the power of the president is always defined by the historical conditions of their presidency, and the conditions of Lincoln's presidency were among the most contingent and fluid of any American president. It's intoxicating to imagine what real possibilities for transformation of the American notions of citizenship and labor and responsibility of government to its citizens were possible with a president and a northern population and a newly liberated South in that context. But it's important also to remember that Lincoln's status as, quote, the only good president is predicated on another one of those contingent factors, his assassination. Lincoln died before the most significant questions of how to honor the sacrifices of the war and the awakening awareness of the basic humanity of the formerly enslaved could be answered. Before the messy political conflicts about the fate of the greenback, the question of expropriation and redistribution of plantation land to those who had worked it their entire lives and southern white resistance to the implications of the social revolution of emancipation were really addressed. There's plenty of reason to believe that a Lincoln who survived to serve out his second term would be one much diminished in historical memory compared to our Lincoln, that neither he nor the country he led had sufficiently evolved to meet the historic moment. But there will always be the possibility, the dream of something better emerging from the rubble of war because of two events that were not wholly determined by the structure of the American political economy, Lincoln's assassination and the selection of Andrew Johnson as Lincoln's vice president. Johnson, emerging as president during one of the most febrile and protean moments in American history, would do his best to dash the best hopes for progress this country has ever had and prove that while the presidency is usually a captive office, the individual personalities of presidents can have profound consequences. Johnson's apocalyptic awfulness is only heightened by the knowledge that even if Lincoln's assassination was unavoidable, John Wilkes Booth really wanted to kill him and presidential security was almost non-existent at that point, Johnson's presidency was not unavoidable. There was somebody else that Republicans had offered the vice presidency to in 1864, General Benjamin Franklin Butler. We'll talk more about General Butler next week. Suffice it to say for now that it's in the gap between a theoretical Butler presidency and the reality of our Johnson presidency that you can hear the living, breathing soul of history that is always whispering through the machinery of material conditions. But Johnson does get the VP spot, and the Lincoln-Johnson ticket wins. And on April 9th, 1865, Lee surrenders to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse, ending the war. And on April 14th, Lincoln was shot at Fort's Theater. Andrew Johnson became president April 15th, 1865. Hell of Presidents is produced by me, Chris Wade, with our co-editor Nick Quaz. Our theme music is by Nick Diamonds, and our show art is by Branson Reese. Join us next week for the historical tragedy of the Andrew Johnson presidency and the ensuing string of very handsome generals. <laughs>